Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, it is Earth Day. Celebrate with us and thank you for taking action. You're a climate avenger, a solar warrior, and we salute you. All right, all right. Welcome back, Solar Warriors. Another week of Suncast. Thank you so much for lending us your ears and the only non-renewable resource that you've got, and that's your time. I promise not to abuse it or take it for granted. Happy Earth Day 2021. And I hope that this Earth Day at least feels brighter and more hopeful than a year ago when we were full on in the pandemic. I'm certainly so excited about all the wonderful things and events and activities that are going on today on Earth Day as we celebrate another year of work towards taking massive climate action. We today are going to learn a lot about how the solar industry has evolved from one of the guys I've watched grow in his career more than 15 years. Rob and I have seen each other in the industry, and today we're going to dive into how he arrived at the company that he helped launch, Spin Out of GE. If you are a longtime listener, you'll recognize the name of the company Rob works for, Distributed Solar Development, because we just had Megan Gaynor on not too long ago. I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode as well. It's gonna be fun, the juxtaposition of those two views, CMO and COO, in this conversation. And I hope that you are ready to learn all about how a career is built around execution and curiosity, because that is Rob Jetty's story. And if you like what you hear today, be sure to subscribe to the show, because that's gonna ensure that you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this. Of course, you can always go check it all out and listen to the rest of our startup advice and founder stories at mysuncast.com or write in whatever podcast player you're in. Just click subscribe if you would. And if you don't mind rating and reviewing, that tells all of the algorithms that you like it and it helps other people find it, which candidly, I'd be really grateful for. And I know Rob would as well. A special thanks to all of you who've done that already. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, today is gonna be a fun conversation with a guy I've known in the industry for a long time, Rob Jetty. He's gained extensive renewable energy experience through a number of executive positions in the industry up and down the value chain since 2002. That's right, almost 20 years of experience he's been developing, financing, constructing, and operating over a billion dollars worth of commercial and utility assets. I think he's got a little residential experience built in or dabbled in there as well. So we're going to talk some more about that, some notable projects that he's been involved in and the one that he's currently involved in. But before we jump into all that, I'd welcome my friend Rob Jetty to Suncast. Thanks, Nico. It's great to be here. Man, long time coming. You know, when we first sort of ran into each other in the industry, you had quite a few more years than I did, but never could have imagined that 15 years later, we'd be uh, doing an interview like this and our lives have changed uh, in many, many ways. 
but it's been fun to watch how the solar coaster and the just the rise of our industry has carried us both along that river. So it's such an honor to be able to have you on the show. Congratulations, by the way, you guys are killing it with DSD. Thank you. And, and likewise, it's, uh, it's, it's great to be here. So I often like to think back to what are the influences in our guests' lives that help them make the decisions, the transitions, the turns and pivots that they make. We think about it sort of as an origin story. I know that you grew up in upstate New York. What was your family environment like? What was it like to be around the dinner table as a child? Tell me a bit about you know, your mom and your dad, the work that they did and how that influenced the way that you see the world and ultimately perhaps the way you navigated the world. I grew up in a, you know, very fortunate to grow up with uh, very loving parents in an environment that really fostered, uh, I think, questioning uh, the status quo uh, in a lot of ways. You know, my mother was a teacher, uh, elementary school teacher, put a lot of value on education, obviously, you know, as, as did my father and my, my dad was a uh, executive in um, really in the software industry since sort of the inception of computers. Dinner conversation was often really around, you know, what was either work related or very intense uh, conversations around education and sort of the need for more quality education. And, you know, my parents were, have always been, been people who care very much about the environment and, and social issues uh, generally. So that was a big, big part of the influence for me, for sure. Did you have a sense at an early age of where you thought your skills aligned with labor and work and passion? Yeah, I, I think it definitely did. I mean, I, and my parents instilled a very strong work ethic in me as a child. You know, a lot of experiences that I was fortunate to have really kind of growing up always in, you know, very rural environment that kept me very close to nature. So woods and fields and bodies of water were, were always a part of my backyard. You know, I've always considered myself very lucky for, but gave, gave me, I think, a, a, certainly an interest in the environment as, as well as a, a very close relationship I have with my, my grandmother who, um, uh, had a very strong interest in in those kinds of sensibilities as well, but no, early on, you know, in in my career, you know, I think it sort of led me in the direction of I, I always spent time as a child working. You know, we had a small family farm for a while, so I spent a lot of time working and and playing playing at work, so <laughs> building things outside. I was a uh, tinkerer. I used to um, fix fix up cars. I rebuilt one. Yeah, I always kind of worked with my hands. Yeah, I could definitely see how uh, that could potentially be an early sign of a chief operations officer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you'll know what I do about your background. We'll unpack a bunch of it here. Doesn't surprise me at all that you were rebuilding cars. Probably you were taking electronics apart as well. What career path did you not go down, but always thought that you would? You know, I did well in, in high school, uh, did, did well in school and had you know, some different opportunities in, in front of me for, for choosing college. I think I was always basically told by, you know, guidance counselors and, and those around me that, you know, I'd, I'd probably end up either a doctor or a lawyer, as was, I think, pretty sort of stereotypical for anybody that did well in school at the time. But, uh, you know, co college was, um, 
I, I guess I didn't go in a traditional path if that's, you know, what you're, what you're getting at, Nico. So, well, I'm, you know, I'm getting at the fact that sometimes, you know, I thought I was going to be a, a, a musician. I thought I'd be in Nashville recording artist. did not anticipate that that talent would ultimately lead me to like the, re- the revision of radio. <laughs> so sure, sure. <laughs> That's you know, um, yeah. Sometimes people get pushed in different directions and I was just curious if, if that might be a part of your story, but you did, you ended up going to college. I did. Yeah. No, the, I, I mean, the interesting thing, I guess, to round out that thought is that I was never pushed in a specific direction by anyone. I, I was always encouraged, you know, by by my parents, just kind of follow my dreams. And my father in particular instilled a sense in me that if you find, you know, something that you'd love to work at, the money will come. I love that. You had to explore a little bit to figure that out for yourself. Tell me about your college experience and how that led to the path that you chose. Yeah, I think it's typical for a lot of folks in the solar industry. It's atypical for most folks that find themselves in executive positions. Sure. So, I mean, I, I went to college not really having any idea what I wanted to do. I would advise uh, advise against in retrospect um, for anyone. So, you know, I, I went to college not really sure, took a lot of different classes and kind of, you know, as, as many of us do, gaining a liberal arts background as an undergrad. I transferred after my freshman year from the University of Richmond to University of Maine. I think strong desire to get closer to you know, the outdoors was a part of that decision, but still not entirely sure why I was in school. And because of that reason, I, I decided to, to actually drop out at the end of my sophomore year and pursue something totally differently. And that totally different thing was a plumbing apprenticeship, if I remember. That is correct. Yes. Um, I did a plumbing apprenticeship, which was uh, really insightful. You know, that honestly came at the direction of my grandmother who I was always very close to, you know, I told her I wasn't sure why I was in school spending all of this money and a uh, conversation around the table with her, you know, she said, well, you should, you should work in a trade because you'll always have a job. That was uh, her advice coming out of, you know, uh, a great depression era survivor, knowing full well too, that I had always, you know, had an interest in working with my hands. I got some of the best advice when I was trying to figure this out, actually in my thirties, kind of going, what am I meant to do? And somebody said, you know, go ask your mom and your grandma what they thought you were going to be when you were 10, what they think you're going to be. And my mom said, she thought I was going to be a singer, which I thought I was going to be. She thought I'd be in Nashville. Probably why I thought I was going to be in Nashville. My grandma said, oh, I thought you were going to be a teacher. Lo and behold. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, so that's great. How did you get to uh, electrical and HVAC from plumbing? I mean, I can sort of see a connection. Working in plumbing, you know, I found that very interesting and uh, really just decided that I wanted to learn more sort of about the built environment in general. So went to school straight from there to, uh, to be an electrician at a, a sort of local vocational school and completed that program and then uh, went on to two-year HVAC technical school in Arizona, where I I have an associate's degree in in HVAC. But you didn't stop there. I mean, you have really invested in figuring out what you wanted to do, Rob. Keep going. After I did that, I came back and worked in the the trades 
you know, as an HVAC technician, moved back east, really still had this very strong sort of environmental ethic desire to do something for the betterment of uh, of the world and, and, and society. You know, I, I kind of came to the quick realization that if I was going to try and influence any change, you know, in that people didn't really give your words much weight if you didn't have that bachelor's degree. So I decided to go back to school and finish that out with a environmental uh, planning degree, which is essentially, you know, like a land use development uh, degree uh, that I have. And in that time, gained more exposure to renewable energy. Um, I had worked on some solar projects uh, as a as a plumber, incidentally, uh, solar thermal projects. Gained some more exposure to what was going on with policy, and uh, decided to combine sort of my interest in uh, in construction with you know my my interest in the environment, and that kind of naturally led me into renewables. Well, before we get into how you became an entrepreneur, I want to point out how early you not only were finding how your skills were going to, as your grandmother said, provide you with a a trade that would support you the rest of your life, but also developing the skills that would help you later on as a developer and as an operations manager. You convinced the school to actually accept your technical degree as the first right. of, your, of your bachelor's, right? So like negotiation is a strong suit for you. Yeah, no, that's very true. A lot of times I think that if I were to do it all over again, I, I, I would have loved to go. Uh, I don't really have any regrets, but I would love to have gone to law school because it is definitely something that um, I consider one of one of my better skills. When I came back and, and to finish my, my degree, I was able to negotiate them accepting you know, not only my sort of limited prior credits from my first attempt at, at college, but also my, you know, associates credits from technical school to eliminate, uh, you know, all of my uh, prerequisites and allow me to graduate in two years. So it's worth noting, Rob's uh, bachelor's is in environmental planning with a focus on real estate and land planning. If you are in the solar industry, that should mean something to you, but we'll go into a little bit more detail on why that matters. Rob, at the time, this is roughly 2002, 2003, right? That was actually even earlier than that. You know, I I graduated with my bachelor's, uh, I guess in 2001. Okay. So tell me about the time between your bachelor's and let's say like Ithaca Bakery, which I want to talk about as your, as one of the early milestones for you. When I graduated you know, my wife and I, well, uh, my fiance at the time, trying to figure out where we wanted to settle down in the Northeast, you know, and really your job kind of dictates that at the time. She had gotten a nice job outside of Boston. So we we moved there. I had applied at the same time for uh, an unpaid internship uh, with an engineering firm um, outside of Boston that allowed me to kind of combine my unusual background um, into helping them with a project to integrate various uh, renewable energy systems into some ecology-based wastewater treatment facilities they were building. That springboarded that opportunity of coming up with some designs offered me a chance to then start a company to then build those designs because we we came up with a design together based on some of my ideas, looked around and no one really understood the equipment 
and they were looking to have a pilot like this built. So conversation with my father told him that I was thinking about the idea of starting a company, wanted to get, you know, he and my, my mother's feedback on it. And, um, my father's comment was that I should absolutely do it, that I would learn more from that experience, whether I, uh, was successful or not than I ever would from an MBA. Oh, I love so. that. I love that. I don't know. You know, nobody can see us right now, but I'm like fist pumping because it's so <laughs> the two things stand out to me. First, you're like it's clear how close a family you are. Your grandmother gives you advice that you take. You seek your the input and advice from your mom and dad, which is why I wanted to start with that story about your family and uh, and how much of an impact that has. And you know, not everybody has the advantage, uh, that advantage in their life. I've said often in Suncast that mentors earlier in your life can make all the difference. And most people overlook the mentorship opportunity that they have around the dinner table, uh, both fathers to their children, as well as, and mothers, uh, parents to the children, but as well also children from their parents. So it really speaks to me that you sought their advice and took the answer and said, okay, going to do this. Like, this is, this is telling, this is helping me for the listener that, maybe doesn't have any context of 2003 in New York. What was the NYSERDA incentive structure like at the time? Well, it was the very beginning of, uh, you know, one of the earliest programs in the country to incentivize the installation of residential and, and small commercial solar. So the state was giving out an incentive of $6 and 50 cents a watt towards the installation of uh, of PV on um, that sounds like a lot how much did solar cost at the time <laughs> solar at the time cost about double that to yeah. install that really offered the opportunity for for me to you know start my own business as well to uh, really kicked off you know the beginning of my career in in photovoltaics I love it, man. For all those naysayers of incentive programs, it is the bedrock of almost every entrepreneur I know in the solar industry. They got in because they saw that there were incentives and they knew if not me, who, if not now, when. So I also think that your first deal is a big thing. And we're going to talk about the difference between the deal that kind of validates your business and the deal that then quote gets you on the map. But tell me about Ithaca Bakery. Ithaca Bakery was the first commercial installation that I did. I believe it was 30 uh, KW sizing and 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 sort of geographic location in, in Ithaca, New York. Ithaca Bakery is is kind of an institution uh, that's that's been here for a very long time. And um, for me as a, a young business owner, that got us an incredible amount of uh, attention, helped facilitate the business growth business's growth. And uh, it was just a really exciting project to be a part of on uh, a first commercial project like that. It was the first one, first commercial solar project at the time, according to NYSERDA, that was upstate, that was not, you know, not part of downstate or the, the five boroughs. In a relatively brief summary, I don't know how else to contextualize that. Give me a sense of what you, what you now in your position think that that, that getting that deal taught you about business and then part B of that, how you go from Ithaca bakery, 30 kilowatts to Exelon three megawatts. That project, I think for me culminated the experience of a lot of work, right? You know, back to my father telling me that I would learn more from that experience of starting my own business than, than anything else I could do. You know, it was a, it was an incredible amount of work, 
right? Back then, I, I think we had 11 employees at our max uh, when we did the installation at the bakery. And it was a lot of work. You're wearing all the hats, right? I was designing projects at night and managing the crews and doing the installation physically, you know, with, with the right alongside them uh, during the day, hanging in burgers, running conduit, founding panels. And, you know, on the nights where you're not doing design work, you're sitting around somebody's kitchen table trying to, you know, explain to them both the financial and environmental benefits of installing solar on their home. It gave me a very broad, I guess, view of all the various aspects that go into running a business of uh, to that end, both the management of people and your staff, you know, as all as well as all the other things I just just discussed. But uh, getting to the next level, you know, that was I had you know kind of I had reached a point actually in my career in having my own business where I actually realized that it was not what I wanted to do. Um, I did not want to stay running a business that was fo- in upstate New York that was focused on residential because that was really the only market opportunity. And then some of these very small commercial type projects. It sounds like you were doing it. You had like 11 employees. You were dominating the market you were in. We were doing well. And it was really just more of a personal choice for for me to kind of take a step back and say, okay, I've, you know, I started the company when I was 25. I have achieved more than I expected to at this age while others would, you know, and should be comfortable staying in that, staying in that role. I knew that, you know, this had been my goal for some time and I felt like I had achieved that goal and it was time to, to do something different. And I really wasn't sure what that was, but I knew that, I had been bitten by the solar bug and it, it was going to have to be, you know, in the industry in some fashion. So how'd you scratch that itch? And you've got this big real estate planning background. The Northeast at the time, by the way, is just is really starting to get going. This is about the time, you know, Jigger and his team are starting to formulate the what became Sun Edison. Uh, he was at BP still at this time, probably 2003 time. So, you know, I, I had taken some time you know, continuing to watch the market, trying to figure out what was, think about what was next. And in, uh, I, I guess it was the early part of 2007, uh, the phone rang um, from a headhunter who was uh, looking to fill a position for uh, Conergy. So at the time, uh, Conergy was, you know, one of the, I think they were actually the largest publicly traded renewables only company in the world. Um, so all of us that were working in the space certainly knew who they were. I was fortunate enough to land uh, a position helping them oversee all the commercial construction of projects that, you know, in what limited capacity there where they were going on, on the East Coast. Was the West Coast team already there? Was Jared Donaldson and the Canada team already there? It was. There was very few people um, in the organization, but yeah, they had just started to build some of that out. This was the some Technics brand that I had gotten uh, hired into. I was on that job for, I, I don't remember the exact time, but it felt like maybe a week. And uh, they decided to open the Epuron brand that Connor G had, which was the finance and development arm. And uh, that, that you know was, was going to develop projects and own assets uh, in the US market. I was asked to meet with the 
dual U.S. German citizen who's going to start that uh, start that up. We discussed, you know, he, he was looking for for someone to help him uh, get that business going, and uh, quickly turned into a, a job offer uh, there to move over to that side of the industry, which was a really unique opportunity for me to combine the the you know development uh, environmental planning background that I had uh, from college with all of the you know construction experience and technical knowledge of solar and and an opportunity for me to grow again by being exposed to the finance side of the community which I had absolutely no exposure to Back in February, fellow solar warrior Ravi Mickelson revealed in episode 345 that the world's top banks funneled nearly $2 trillion into fossil fuels since the Paris Accord signing, despite their lip service towards climate and renewables. If that gets under your skin as much as it did mine, then let Ravi's fast-growing fintech banking platform, Atmos, help you align your purpose with your pocketbook, your cause with your cash. And you can know that it's never supporting interests or industries misaligned with your personal mission. Start your financial journey at joinatmos.com forward slash suncast. Hey, by now, I'm sure you've probably heard about our mission-minded program, getting your dream job in clean energy in 12 weeks. Our current cohort has given us great feedback and kudos, I might add, as they go through the material and our coaching calls. You can see more about what this program looks like at suncast.vip. That's our brand spanking new webpage to talk about the mission-minded program. That's also where you can send friends, family, neighbors, colleagues that you know who might need a little extra help, a little guidance to find that dream job in clean energy. Our mission-minded program cohort is ongoing right now. We are taking a waiting list for our next cohort. I'd encourage you to do two things. One, send anyone you know that might be interested. Two, those of you who are so inclined, please go check out suncast.vip and email me, nico at mysuncast.com. You know, it's so funny, the number the number of similarities in our career broadly. I mean, we both worked at Conergy, uh, among many other things. We both started our own company at 20, roughly uh, mid-20s, um, focused on a regional solar market. Both did a 30 kilowatt CNI project that was the first of its kind in the market. And I just, I laugh every time we talk about this, but I'll never forget. In fact, I literally just messaged Bradley Zeeve at Monterey County Weekly. It was my first big deal. First time I ever had a over $200,000 check in my hand, right? <laughs> Somebody paying for a project. And um, I just emailed him and said, hey, how's that project going? We installed it in 2000 and I think seven, but so you're at Epuron you are now marketing essentially energy. You're no longer just selling solar. You're marketing energy. How do you get how do you get in the door for this deal at Excelon, which by your own expression put you on the map? Yeah, you know, I can't take credit for the relationship there specifically, but Connergy had made an acquisition, another uh, sort of smaller traditionally residential solar shop. Um, in the Philadelphia area where Exelon was headquartered and the head of power origination at Exelon, uh, you know, had an interest in renewables. There was a new RPS in Pennsylvania had sparked a relationship with um, uh, the founders of that business that Conergy acquired. 
there was a discussion already there around how could Exelon make its first move, you know, in the the sort of wholesale uh, solar space utility. Util- I dare I hesitate to say utility scale because uh, the first project was three megawatts, but I came into the relationship to help you know ride shotgun with the team on negotiating the PPA with them. But more importantly, was the one leading the project development of the actual site, getting it developed and permitted and uh, through interconnection approvals and and ready for construction. And that's all post-contract. That's correct. Yeah, that was all post-PPA contract. So I negotiated the lease and uh, took the project through as the rest of its entitlements. So at the time, for folks just to understand, 2005, 2006... What was the largest utility project in the nation? Gosh. It was pre-Nellis. That's right. This project was being built in the late, uh, well, early 2008 timeframe, 2008. I think at the time there was maybe a 10 megawatt project in California. Yeah. The name is uh, escaping me at the moment. I remember nationwide news, the Sunset Reservoir, which we'll we'll potentially talk about, was a big deal, right? It was a big deal at five megawatts. Just context here where folks will say, oh, three megawatts, that's um, kind of run of the mill. It wasn't. It was a big, big deal. My question to you, Rob, since you were involved in that sort of ushering through the the team through the PPA process and and you were involved, I'll call it way back when, what's changed or has anything changed in the last 20 years in in the why behind C&I consumer purchasing for, for renewables? If you were looking at return on investment, or you know, or on the payback of projects in the CNI space, it was largely driven. You know, the environmental benefits I would say outweighed the economic consideration at the time. You know, there was paybacks that weren't terribly long when you consider a 30, 35 year life, you know, useful life of the facility. You know, still probably fifteen year payback for someone to make that investment, you know, from themselves, PPAs were, you know, just becoming to be a thing, as you mentioned through Sun Edison. So it was definitely that much more of a shift and it's definitely gone the other direction now. Well, I remember back in the day as well, like, yeah, there was a lot of environmental sentiment sentiment for most of the businesses that made the decision, but there was also just this transfer from variable to fixed operational expense. Right. And that was a big one. Like when we figured out like, Oh, I can convince them that this moves, it moves the needle in CapEx to OpEx, and they don't have to think about this variable expense on a monthly basis. That was a big deal. Whereas now um, it's it's more complex than that. And it's definitely more on the financial sale. Would you say that's true? I would agree. Yeah, yep. mm-hmm. definitely true. So you're a lifelong learner, but at this point you had just scratched the surface. Tell me about the school of Kimber. <laughs> Well, that three megawatt project, which, you know, so it it was the first wholesale power project to participate in PJM. It's, you know, the big, this kind of feather in in my cap and, and, you know, some others that worked on, on that project as well. So that going through that entire experience that we just discussed, you know, garnered some attention and certainly was a powerful thing on my resume. It was the first wholesale solar project east of the Mississippi. So you know, Recurrent, I was a very early employee at Recurrent. They uh, kind of came knocking as Conergy was, you know, unfortunately in dire financial straits um, from their overseas businesses. So I, I joined Recurrent 
think I was somewhere around employee 20, was hired to run development for them and, and, and origination in the, in the East. 2008, 2009? That's right. Yeah, it was in 2008 when I started there, end of 2008. Went to work for Sheldon Kimber, who you know had taken over development and had been leading project finance, but also just uh, took over development shortly after I joined. As an aside, if you are unfamiliar with Sheldon Kimber, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the two or three podcasts we've done with Sheldon, an amazing developer, thought leader, entrepreneur in and of his own right. He was one of the original guys at Recurrent, now uh, the development arm of Canadian Solar. Yeah, that's right. And uh, now the the founder and the head of Intersect Power. Yeah, that's right. But uh, no, the school of Sheldon, there's a number of us in the industry that that went through it. And um, I can e- easily credit Sheldon as the person that's had the sort of greatest impact on on my career from a knowledge perspective. I'm going to rename it Kimber Academy. <laughs> He's done well enough for himself. He could probably have a Kimber Academy. Somewhere he he probably, <laughs> probably could. But no, Sheld- I learned more from Sheldon about you know project finance and process, organizational structure. You know, I, I came to to the role with a, a decent base of project development, but continued to learn more about that. But just the he opened my eyes to a world of of power markets and you know how projects were financed and and just the the concept of a project life cycle and you know, how things go from, from point A to point B, from an idea to an operating asset at the end of the day. And it just had a pretty, it had a really profound impact, you know, on me, you know, at that time. And, and I've, I've carried a a lot of the things that I learned from him and just from the experience of, of recurrent generally through my career since. Well, you know, one of the things that I gleaned from Sheldon, and I'm curious if you remember, the details because you've done so many deals, but I remember from Sheldon how advanced the recurrent team was at structuring deals compared to the rest of the industry. I would say even almost compared with people in the industry today, stuff recurrent was doing 10 years ago that people aren't doing right now. Do you remember your first deal? Uh, my first deal there was, um, was yeah, easy, easy to remember. It was a very large rooftop project. It had, it had probably every aspect of complexity to it that it, it could have possibly had. We couldn't have made it any more difficult. It was a, um, a project that we did in Cranberry, New Jersey with Prologist. So it was very large rooftop installation. It was actually four adjacent buildings that totaled six megawatts. The entire thing was structured the finance of the project was structured through a prepay with Macquarie and that the prepay it was a finance structure common to how natural gas peaker plants were were being financed at the time and prior to that. No doubt something that Sheldon and Tiffany Elliott came up with from their prior days. It was a, using a prepay on a, on a sleeved SREC offtake hedge. No one had ever financed a solar project like that in the United States. Well, I'm not surprised. It's the first time I've ever even heard of those words all used together in a sentence. <laughs> uh, it's indicative, I guess, of how your team uh, was ahead of the curve. That's definitely true, and I, I don't, uh, I will not begin to take any credit for the, uh, you know, for the idea. Uh, it's certainly something that came from Sheldon and, and and Tiffany Elliott, who who ran Power Origination and had a, a lot to do with how the creativity of structuring deals at Recurrent, you know, at the time. 
Yeah, let me ask you a question about that. You're a smart guy. You've been developing projects, You're, but now it's like getting called up to the big leagues where you already thought you were at the big leagues. And now somebody like Tiffany walks in and she's like, hey, we're going to do this sleeve to SREC take hedge. Not only do you probably like clench a little bit and go, ooh, let me figure that out. How do you prepare yourself to now go in and talk to the customer about that? Is it a team sale at that level? And, you know, there are probably hundreds of people listening right now who have who have very little concept of how these deals come together. But how do you, really an operations hands-on guy, begin to indoctrinate yourself with these esoteric financial tools such that you can sell them to the client? Well, I mean, it, this was an unusual deal because it was a wholesale power. It had a wholesale power off take component. So I wasn't actually selling anything. It was much more like a greenfield utility scale deal where, you know, merchant power is being sold directly into the grid. Yet the power component was being valued for like a 10 year strip, if I'm correct. And had a you know certain component of the financial stack required to finance the project. So Macquarie was essentially prepaying for the power that the facility was going to uh, provide, and then we went out to some other folks who had other large companies uh, who had SREC compliance needs in the New Jersey market at the time. So they had RPS renewable portfolio standard requirements based on the structure of the New Jersey market. We went out to those that were looking to acquire those SRECs, essentially sold a piece to, I believe, Constellation at the time, sold a piece to Hess. I feel like there was a third that I'm not remembering at the moment. So Macquarie basically sleeved all of that together on the REC side. That allowed us to bring the cash in to finance the construction of the project. Well, Rob, we could spend all day going through the amazing stories that uh, yeah, I know you could share about your growth. But one of the things I want to make sure that we capture here is the intentionality with which you began to acquire skills across the values, the value stack. You spent a, a significant portion of your career at Gerlicher, which became M&W. What from that experience is illustrative of how you continue to expound on that knowledge acquisition? And also maybe what was the growth there with, with Jerry and the team from when you came to when you left? So post-recurrent, I did spend a, a short you know, period of time working in the module uh, manufacturing business. And, you know, it really opened my eyes to, uh, you know, with one of the, large, the largest tier one suppliers. And it kind of opened my eyes to how much I could gain from working in the different parts of the value stack. And I, I decided that that was, uh, you know, something that I wanted to focus on for my career and kind of fill that out. So I uh, had gotten development and, and some, some project finance exposure at Recurrent thereafter moving into the EPC side of the business at Gerlicher, what became M&W and is now actually signal because they they acquired they acquired what was uh, required the business after it had been rebranded i think the the whole company's gone through like four names at this point and that was a really incredible experience when we started out at at Gurukur, i had been hired to help lead the business development team 
And that was an EPC, you know, only focused business. We had a pretty incredible ramp and, and success story there. Our first year I was there, we did 70 million in revenue. Next year we did 200 and the year after that, a little over 400 million in, in revenue, which was a pretty crazy, pretty crazy ride. You know, we obviously added a good bit of team members uh, to the time in that time period. Um, and it was a educational experience really in understanding the depth of the construction side of the industry and what it, you know, and, and also what it meant to scale a business um, in our industry as well. So I think those are really the two most valuable parts of that experience. When you say what it meant to scale, are there any gems we can pull out of that that for you are illustrative of kind of that you use now and in the, in the work that you're doing with DSD? Having the ability to uh, have a grasp on, on resource planning is, is critical for the growth of an organization, particularly when you're doing year-on-year doubling like that. First of all, having very clearly defined roles and responsibilities in the organization is paramount. And then understanding the throughput that can be handled by you know a single individual contributor in those in those roles is kind of the foundation that's needed. Once you have that understanding, you can then look at your pipeline, look at the amount of work that you have coming, and better plan for the number of people that you're going to need to then execute on that work as it's uh, as it's coming down the pike. Um, so there was some really great you know, work uh, done in that organization that I would not pretend to take all of the credit for. That was a huge component to how we were able to, you know, forecast the management of that growth and, and keep our arms around it. That might be one of the best gems sort of takeaways I've heard in a long time on Suncast. Uh, thank you for sharing that. On the surface, it's like, one of those, okay, I totally understand that moments, but it also is something that is non-obvious in the in the meeting out of being an entrepreneur or growing a business that if you haven't defined roles and responsibilities in the organization, I just talked about this with a management consultant we had on the show earlier as well, that that helps you understand and understanding the throughput at an individual level, that those two things, clear roles, how much capacity each person has in that role and a clear vision on the or a visibility into the pipeline helps you scale. Without those three, you can't scale. That's right. That is super interesting. Hey, all right, Solar Warriors. This is where we're going to take a quick break between episodes as the content and conversation with Rob was just too much to pack into one little episode. We've decided we're going to put it in a two-parter. So you've just listened to part one. And if you are playing it in a podcast player, I'm sure that you saw there's a part two as well. Hope you've got that queued up. It's coming right up in just a minute. How have you been experiencing this conversation with Rob? Does his story and his background and his time at Recurrent and M&W and other, many other companies resonate with you? Anything about it that you would like to know more about? Hit us up on LinkedIn and let Rob and I know what your thoughts are share it with someone else in your community who maybe is on a similar path. I really, really love hearing about Rob's background and his tireless pursuit of excellence as the apprentice journeyman and now master 
that he is in his craft. If that sounds like you and you'd like to join Rob and many others in our industry, but you just aren't sure what steps to take next, as you've probably heard in the mid-roll, you can check out our mission-minded program at suncast.vip, where we help you in 12 weeks or less go from industry curious to industry inscribed and get that dream job you've always been looking for. Folks like Rob serve as guides and others that have been guests here and friends in my career in the clean energy industry serve as as mentors and even teachers along the way. Check it out at suncast.vip. And don't miss part two, which if you are playing them in series is coming up right after the end of the episode, which is ever so near. And if you're wondering how you could partner with us to help bring Suncast to the masses for free, then you can check it out at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. A special thanks to those who have helped sponsor and bring Suncast to you today for free. We'll be back as we always are on Tuesdays and Thursdays with tactical and practical advice to help you navigate your way through a clean energy career as an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur, or an excited seeker. Thanks for tuning in. Remember, you are what you listen to. So glad that you've taken the first step. Thanks for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.